Uh, would you give our worship team and our tech team a big hand for leading us today? You know, uh, we provided an opportunity, and rightly so, for us to be able to respond to those in need. You know, as I mentioned a few moments ago, where much is given, much is also required. But at the same time, I have this realization that many of you, many of you are tired. And I, I want to, before I get into this message today and the beginning of this brand new series, I just want to, as your pastor, I just want to pray for you. And I want to just pray that God would help you. I know that many of you are tired. And the way that I know that is I know what many of you do vocationally. Not all of you, but I know what many of you do vocationally. And I know that kind of hours you have been working since the hurricane came. I also know that there are many of you that still do not have power. I talked to a young mom in our church just a few moments ago. She's got three small kids at home, and they still have no power. And this is what she said. She had, she's got a great attitude. Her and her family always does, her and her husband. And she said this to me. She said, and she called her husband's name. She said, power or not, I've got to get to church to get, to get my head on straight again. Could you imagine three small kids a week and no power? And so many of you, because of your job and what you're doing, uh, to help people in the community and, and help people in all kinds of different ways. I know that you're tired. I know that you're f- fatigued. Some of you are just emotionally spent. Some of you have sore muscles because you've lifted and pulled and dragged more than you have in, in a long, long time. And so you just need God to strengthen you. And before I get into the message, uh, I, I want to just pray that God would, would just bless you. So, Father, I just pray. I know that there are people here today. I, I I see them even in the service today. I know the kind of hours they've been keeping. I know the ones that many of them who do not have power as of yet. I know those who have just gone through. It's, it's been impactful upon their lives in even greater measures. And so today, God, you know those that are tired. You know those that need a, a sense of emotional jolt because they feel defeated. You know those who are sore and aching. You know those who need encouragement. You know those who need a financial blessing. And I just pray that you would speak into their life today, that you would encourage them. Thank you that you brought them here to church today to just have me pray a little prayer to remind them how irrationally loved they are by you. And so we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So glad that each of you are are here today. Uh, somebody asked me, uh, in fact, I got a text about two or three days ago. Some of you may know that Chick-fil-A has been without power. <laughs> and so they texted me, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, number one, I'm driving by there every single day, and there's not a lot of hope right now. And, and, and then uh, and they sort of, whatever they, they did, sort of laughed, and they said, well, what are you doing about it? I said, well, I'm... Uh, if they don't open soon, I'm, uh, I'm going to join a support group because I'm really, I'm really, really struggling with that. I'm going through some intense withdrawals. You know, you have no idea that scrambled eggs and, you know, chicken can do that to you, but it will. And so, uh, but, but kidding aside, uh, we're keeping you guys in prayer. And thank you for helping us to help so many people. Now, this morning, we are beginning... And you see it on the screen already. We are beginning what is the most important message series of this entire year. There has not been to this point, and there will not be in the remainder of our year, a message series more important than this one. And I realize that that is a very, very strong statement. 
And, uh, and, and yet I make that statement uh, because I really, to the deep core of my being, believe it to be true. Now, I, I say that based on the reality that, that we've covered a lot of ground this year. We've dealt with some really crucial topics uh, during 2017. However, what we're going to focus on today and for the next three weeks is so dominant in the scriptures that we're actually calling this series, you see it on the screen right now, the main thing, above and beyond everything else that we have or, ever, or will ever talk about, this is the main thing, the main thing. And I, I recently did some review, and I started looking back of what have we covered so far this year, and then I was just looking back through some of my notes and realized again, I jogged my memory that we had started this year, and some of you will remember this, those of you who have good, good memories. We started this year with a series on the Beatitudes, and I remember that series very, very well. I remember it was during that series. I had lost my dad in September. I lost my mom uh, during that series. I remember my dear friend who is here, uh, Dr. Bill Hackett from Southeastern University, spoke to me, uh, spoke for me, and spoke to me words of encouragement as well. I came back uh, the Sunday after my mom's service, and the beatitude for that day was, blessed are those who mourn. And I really identified with that. Many of you did as well. And so we spent seven uh, weeks looking at, in the beginning of the year, the Beatitudes. And then we took three weeks, and we looked at a series about how you and I can become more financially fit. And then out of that, we rolled into a series prior to Easter, into Easter, and sort of post-Easter for two or three weeks afterwards. Uh, many of you will remember this. I got a lot of feedback from you uh, concerning this. Seven words from the cross. What were the seven final words that Jesus spoke? And then out of that, we looked at in four messages, preparing for our future. And then you know if you've been here the last few weeks. We've just finished up the series on don't lose heart in the midst of challenge and chaos and pressure and everything that is going on in this world and how that we have to deal with the world, the flesh, the devil, how that in the midst of all of that, we still do not have to lose heart. And then, you know, just looking back, some standalone messages sprinkled in in between these series. But now having transversed through these relevant and necessary topics from the Bible, we now arrive at the main thing. And by the way, I just want to tell you, and this is completely on me. This, this is my fault. This series is quite overdue. And I'm, I'm not being apologetic. I have no regrets about working diligently these last eight months to try and feed you every week and inspire you every week and encourage you or those who have spoken for me. That's a really, really big thing. That's really, really important. And because I know when you come, it's really, it's really in the forefront of my thinking. When people walk away, I want them to be spiritually fed. I want it to be a message from God that they can relate to. I want them to feel encouraged. I want them to be inspired. I want them having to come through, if they're going through a tough time, to just walk out and be, uh, you know, I'm so glad I came to church. And all of that is important. And we will continue to do that. And so I have no regrets about what has happened to this point. But now is the time for me to rattle our cages just a little bit, our cages. Now is the time for me to ring our bell a little bit, to seize our attention. And you just say, well, why would you want to do that? Because it's true for you, and it's especially true for me. It is too easy for us to become relaxed. Would you not agree? It is too easy to become relaxed. It is too easy to become, you ready for this? Self-interested. 
How many of you have ever read the book about Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life? Have you ever read that book? Do you remember the opening statement in it? It is not all about you. And it's not all about me. And the reality is we need our cages rattle from time to time. We need our bell ring from, you know, at various points in our life because we do get relaxed. And we do become overly self-interested. And if we're not careful, friends, we will even become apathetic. And in so doing, we take our eye off of the main thing that is found throughout the Bible. And Jesus was extraordinarily passionate about the main thing about this matter I'm going to talk to you about today and for the next three weeks. And he wants us to actually align ourselves together with him. So to help us in week one, I just want to hopefully raise the passion level and energy level around the main thing a little bit. Uh, Next week, you're going to want to be back because I'm going to take what I'm going to talk about today and I'm going to not deal with the same thing, but I'm going to deal with it in a practical reality. How can we actually put this into motion? But to help us in week number one, I want to take you to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Like many of you, I have read the Bible numerous times. Somebody asked me recently, how many times have you read the Bible through? And I honestly had to say, I don't know. It's sort of like bananas, a bunch. I've, I've read it a bunch, but I, I, I don't know how many times. And, and I can't even tell you the countless number of times that I've read through Luke 15. But many, many, many years ago, when I was a much younger guy, much younger than I am right now, although I'm extraordinarily young, I heard a message out of Luke chapter 15, and when I did, it rattled my cage. It shook me up. It grabbed my attention. It got me thinking, and I'd read it, but it caused me to forever see some of the the verses that I'm going to share with you, and really, I'm going to tell the story and encourage you to go back and read Luke 15 on your own. But there were some things I noticed that I'd never seen before. And some ways in which I was challenged that I had never been challenged before. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that that would happen for us here today. In Luke 15, it is the only recorded time in the Bible that Jesus tells three parables in a row, back to back to back. He never does it again. He tells parables throughout his teachings, but he never does it three times in a row. Obviously, anytime something like that happens in the Bible or something close to it, uh, what Jesus is trying to do is he is trying to grab us with an attention-getting uh, point that he wants to headline. And so Jesus has these, th- and again, I hope you'll go back and read them uh, this afternoon even or this evening or, or tomorrow morning in your devotions, but just read through the verses. I'm not going to share all the verses, but I want to walk you through the parables. All right, back to back to back. Jesus had never done that before, nor since. In parable number one, Jesus tells about uh, this shepherd who has 100 sheep. And then out of the 100 sheep, one of the sheep wanders away. And Jesus is going to tell this story. Right on the heels of that, parable number two, Jesus tells about this woman who had 10 coins, and one of the coins turns up missing, and sort of the ain'ts that that creates within her. On the heels of that, he deals with the third and final parable, and this parable, this parable takes on even greater meaning. I mean, you just look, it's, it's brilliant, really, the way that Jesus lays out these parables. A hundred sheep, and animals matter a whole lot. And, and people ask from time to time, 
you know, are animals going to be in heaven? I think they are. The Bible talks about it. The lion's going to lay down with the lamb. I know there's going to be plenty of bulldogs in heaven. I just have that sense. I, I, don't, I can't prove it biblically. I just feel that in my spirit. But there's probably, but it's animals. It's animals, 100 animals. And then it's like it starts hitting a little bit closer to home because it's like, now it's like financial provision and security. A woman has 10 coins, and one of the 10 coins is missing. But then he draws it. He goes from 100 to 10. And now he goes in parable number three to one. And now he's talking about a son. He's talking about somebody's child. And in this particular case, this son asked for an early inheritance, which was certainly not a, appropriate. It was unthinkable, but he asked his dad for it, although his dad is not yet obviously passed. And he asked his dad for his inheritance early, and he takes it, and he packs up, and he leaves home. And Jesus is standing there back to back to back telling these three parables. Now, I think it's important that you and I understand because it adds weight to the totality of what is playing out here when you look at the backdrop as to what is occurring in Jesus' surroundings. When he announces these three connecting parables, Jesus is actually standing when he initially starts into this. He, you know, he's going to tell it among both groups, but he has been standing around sort of in the marketplace, and he is among a crowd of people who were totally religious. These were like hell-bent people of the day. They were first-class sinners. They were far from God. And they know it, and Jesus knows it, and, and customarily you would not find a rabbi, somebody with sort of the spiritual clout that Jesus had, mixing with, with people such as this. How many of you remember that often in the Bible Jesus is referred to as a friend of sinners? And how many of you know that anytime somebody approached Jesus and or sort of put that title, that tag on him, that he was a friend of sinners, they meant it in a condescending fashion, but Jesus took it as a compliment. He's like, you're absolutely right, I'm a friend of sinners. In fact, Jesus would make these outrageous statements like, I've come to seek and to save those that are lost. He would make these statements about, it is not those who are well who need a physician. It is not those who are well, who are spiritually all right, who need a doctor. It is those who are spiritually sick. It is those who need my Father's love. It is those who need my sacrifice. And so Jesus is standing in a crowd of people who are irreligious and bent on, on sin and far from God. Eventually, though, up walks this gathering of spiritual elitists, of people that just felt smug and sanctimonious about their religion. They theologically marginalized lost people, and they feel justified in doing so. And I'll tell you why, and you got to hear this. This is really important. They felt that they could marginalize people who liked the very ones Jesus was speaking to because in their mind, in their estimation, Jesus felt the same way about lost people, and God felt the same way about lost people that they did, and they didn't like lost people. They didn't want to be around them. They didn't want to associate with them. They didn't want to talk with them. They didn't want to hang out with them. They didn't want to go to dinner with them. They did not want to be in the context of any reality with them, and so it is shocking to these spiritual elitists, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, when they walk up and see Jesus hanging out with such riffraff. And they're like, what is going on here? That is the context. That is the setting, all right? So how many of you, I can see all of your hands with these new lights. I can see all of you really, really well now. So if you're with me to this point, and I've not even got to it yet, but if you're with me so far, I know you're tired, but wave your hand at me so I know you're here, all right? That's good. So what does Jesus do now? He tells these three parables. 
He tells them, and it's really to both groups, what he and the Father actually do think. And when Jesus speaks, he wants everyone to know, and you be sure you get this, this is the first idea. Three parables, but there are three very, very important statements that Jesus is going to make. All right? Statement number one, and I'm not quoting his words, but I'm just telling you the thought behind them. Statement number one is this, lost things matter to God. Lost things matter to God. And he deals with this in all, it is commonality in all three of the parables. And and let me just remind you, all right, to prove to you that lost things matter to God, what does he talk about in each of the three parables? He talks about things that are lost. This one lost sheep, even though there are 99 others, think about that, matters enormously to the shepherd. The shepherd doesn't stand back and say, you know, big deal. Uh, You know, one lost sheep, I've got 99. No, it mattered a whole lot. Although this dear lady has nine remaining coins in her possession, this one lost coin is immensely important to her. It actually represents, you just simply do the math on it, it represents a tenth of her estate. A wayward son is lost, and lost things matter to God. And this wayward son breaks the heart of a loving father that stands every single day looking for the return of his child. And, and you just think about that. Again, keep in mind, the, the group that Jesus has been talking to, this, uh, this ethical riffraff, and people that were far from God, and, you know, just involved in all kinds of things. And Jesus is right in the midst of them. And then this group of elitists that has walked up, and, and Jesus tells these parables. This is what Luke 15, and it's why it's so amazing. It's why it's so astounding because Jesus has never, ever done anything like this. And so to just really grab the attention of both of them, he says, you know what? Lost things matter to God. And he mentions the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. He is very calculating. He's very intentional in the telling of these three parables. He wants it to resonate with them, with both groups standing there, with the lost irreligious group and the sanctimonious Pharisees. He wants them to realize, and I want you to hear me so clearly when I say this today, because we've got to realize it as well, that God's heart is so gigantic and his love is so unbending that it really matters to God that people are lost. It really matters to God. I want you to read this familiar verse with me out of John 3. John 3, 16 is the most famous of all verses, but I want you to read John 3, 17 with me. Everybody, let's read it together. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, lots of people like to condemn others. That's not what Jesus came for. And lots of people get condemned for various reasons. Some people get condemned because of their profane lifestyle. I'm not making excuses for their lifestyle. All I'm saying is that Jesus loves them in the midst of their lifestyle. But people get condemned for their lifestyle or their political persuasion or their skin color or myriads of other reasons. I've had as a pastor many times, and and people don't even know. And I can say this openly because I can't recall a time when any of you have ever done this. And maybe this is sort of a sub, you know, subconscious way of saying, don't do it. But I've had people come to me before over the years as a pastor, and they just 
they just want to rail on people that are far from God. They just want to go off on all the secularized people and just condemning people and, and this person. And just, I mean, as a, and, it, and it grieves me. Often I won't say anything because I know that probably what I would say would not be well received in the moment. But I'm just thinking, how in the world, how in the world can you just, with such condemning language, just lay out somebody that matters so much to God? How many of you are with me on that? You see, this is the way that God wants us to see people. Are you with me for this? God wants us to see people not as they are, but what they can become if they experience his love and his grace, and his forgiveness. Anytime you're around an irreligious, hell-bent, first-class, blue-ribbon pagan, try your best not to see them as they are in that moment. See what they can become when they receive Jesus as the Savior and the leader of their life. That's how Jesus sees them. And a lot of people come to condemn, but Jesus never did. God loves everybody, and God wants everybody to be saved. But this is the big problem. This is why we need our cage rattle. This is why we need to get shook up a little bit uh, once again. The big problem is that any of us can edge uh, into this idea where, where God's love and passion to find and save lost people garnishes little or no attention to our heart. It's like the main thing that we're going to be talking about today in the next three weeks. It's like the main thing in our mind, and it happens, it happens to me. So I can only imagine that it must happen to you as, as well, that our eye gets off the prize, our eye gets off the main thing. But for God, it never does. For Jesus, it never does. When something is missing, when people are lost and disconnected from God's family, that has the primary attention of God, and that should ring true for us as well. Look at this next verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It reminds me what we're all about. 2 Peter 3, 9. Let's all read this one together. Will you help me out? The Lord isn't slow about keeping his promises as some people think he is. In fact, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. So Jesus has both groups. They're standing in the marketplace that day. Uh, disdainfully being looked upon are these pagans, and here are the people that just feels like justified because they know how that they feel about lost people, and they assume that God does as well. So they're like wondering, well, what is Jesus doing mixing with such? And so Jesus, first of all, in these parables, and again, it follows in all the parables, lets them know that lost things matter to God. Secondly, be sure you get this, that lost things also require a compelling search. Lost things require a compelling search. And it's found, again, in all three parables. The shepherd, what does he do? He goes on a compelling search. He leaves the 99 sheep to go and search for the lost one. What does this lady do? She has the nine coins in her possession. But again, this is one-tenth of her estate. This is her reality of financial security for then and for the future. And so what does she do? She lit a lamp and she moves basically every piece of furniture in her home looking for her lost coin. And what does this dad do? This dad who loves his son so much that is, that is no doubt knows, knows that his son is in reckless behavior. This dad scans the horizon constantly longing to see the silhouette of his son walking in the direction of home. So what is the message of Jesus for us here? It is this. 
Listen, please get it. Please. When you love something and it is missing, you search for it relentlessly. Is that not true? I mean, you think about it. Um, I've been in many crowded stadiums before. Generally, uh, I walk away quite disappointed, you know, at the end of it. But I've been in many crowded stadiums. But I can remember, and, you know, the kids are not small anymore. But when they were small, I just always, and some of you parents who have younger you just, there's, there's just, there's just this ripple effect of emotion at the very thought that, that your child could be lost in a crowd. I can remember being in crowded stadiums before, crowded shopping areas, just crowds. And, and I can just remember the kids being real small and, and I'd be like, you know, hold on to my belt loop and, you know, stay right here or hold their hand because there was just this fear and trepidation. If they, if they get away from me in a crowd like this, they're going to be lost. And I, and I knew me well enough to know I try not to go in panic, but I probably would. And when you think about that, that's exactly what Jesus feels and shows toward any lost person. And he feels that way toward any, any, no matter who they are, no matter where they have been, no matter what they've done. Lost things require a compelling search. And if you and I, and this is really what I want to be a huge takeaway from this talk today, and so I want you to hear it carefully. If you and I are going to be like Jesus as a church, as an individual, we're going to have to be in unceasing search mode. We're going to have to do that. We're going to be like Jesus. And we say that all the time. I want to be like Jesus, all right? Jesus is always in continual search mode. We've got to do that individually. All of us have people in our life that are far from God. Have you ever been to that point in your life? Have you ever been to that point in your life where you've just been praying and reaching out to somebody for so long, you just, I mean, I'm, just be honest, um, you just wanted to quit. You just wanted to give up. I mean, because it just wasn't. And can I tell you, my dad who passed away in September, who I know for a fact, in fact, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of his death. And, and I was thinking about this for years and years and years I prayed for my dad. For years and years and years, I had conversations with him about eternity. And there were times in my life, and I never told him this, there were times in my life I just wanted to just say, what's, what's the use? I'd, I'd have these moments when I'd feel like, why keep it up? It seems not only is he not moving forward, there were times when it seemed like he was moving by. Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? I've got a feeling it has. And what do we do? Do we give up? Do we quit? Do we just say, no, I'm just too tired? No, we stay in an all-out, unceasing church mode as a church, as a church. And you know this, but I'm just going to echo it once again because it's a great time to remind us of this. As a church, the loss will always be welcome and cared for here. You've got to know the mentality of our church. When we plan and when we talk and when we pray, it is not just for, uh, about accommodating those who are already found, although that is important, and it's a big deal for me to feed the sheep. That's a really big deal. You've already heard me address that. But we don't say every decision that we're going to make is only about those that are already found. You know, I, I say this with all due respect, and God knows my heart. There's, and I'm not being condescending, but there's enough churches spread across our nation that the entire focus is completely, solely on those who are already found 
And I just want to say, our church is not one of them. Our church is about those who are already found, but it is also about those that are lost. When they come into a service, they need to be able to resonate. They need to be able to understand that there's a God in heaven that loves them. How many of you would agree with that? That's the kind of church we ought to be. I can remember I pastored, and this just came to me. It's not in my notes. First time I've ever pastored a church, I was about 28 years old, and I was, I was just over my head. Dr. Hackett, they, I, I was way too young to be elected to be the senior leader of this church, and, 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 and God was blessing in, in spite of me, and our church was growing, and we had added some services, and the church was getting more and more crowded, and I'll never forget the day the guy sort of proudly walked up to me, and he just looked, and he basically said, I, I may not be quoting him verbatim, but it's going to be very, very close. Don't you think our church is large enough now? Don't you think? And you know what my response was? Should we still be open for your lost family members? Should we still be open for business for your lost friends? What's the answer? Absolutely. We're never going to close our doors to people that are far from God. Our church is for not only those who are found, but you've, and this is why this is so important to me. You've got people, you've got people in your life just like I do. You've got family members and you've got friends that are far, far from God, that are living profane lifestyles and seems to be, by the way, enjoying it quite well. But there comes a time when God starts rattling cages. And how many of you know that when that starts happening, there needs to be a safe place where somebody can hear a dangerous message about Jesus and what he can do in their life. And that's the kind of church we want to be. A church for the found, where the found can be fed and inspired and encouraged. But a church where your lost friends and your lost family members can come and where they can hear about the love and the grace of God. And as a church and individually, how many of you would agree we must be in all-out, unceasing search mode? We've got to do it. That's what Jesus was talking about. All right. Uh, just a little bit more time here, so let me just deal with the last one. One, one last connection that Jesus made in these back-to-back-to-back parables. When lost people are found, that's what Jesus is saying, heaven will throw a celebratory party. When lost people are found, heaven throws a celebratory party. What happens in Luke chapter 15? And Jesus, again, he deals with it in these parables, and he tells us what happened. He said, the shepherd finds the one lost sheep, and how does he react? He is overjoyed. The woman calls a friend to rejoice, having found her lost coin, and the father welcomes the son home. And when he does, what does he do? You read it. Read it this afternoon. He kills the fatted calf and he throws this extravagant party. What's what's happening? There's a celebration. There's joy because something that was lost is now found. Just in case you're wondering, 
when you personally, when you responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction and invitation in your own life, and you accepted Jesus as your Savior and your leader, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that when that moment occurred in your life, that heaven was not silent, that the angels did not yawn, that the prophets and the spiritual giants of the Bible did not think, big deal. You know what, that, what happened in that moment? At that moment, when you bowed your knee, at that moment, when you prayed and invited Christ to become the priority of your life, I will tell you exactly what happened. It inspired a cosmic party in heaven, unlike anything that you could ever imagine. It did. You say, really? Just look at this verse. Look at it right here on the screen. This is right out of Luke 15, and you're going to see it. This is out of the message version, but I want you to see verse 10. It says, count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. And it happened for you. But how many of you know there needs to be more parties thrown in heaven for your family members and for your friends and for your neighbors and the people that you work with? One book that I read some time ago really summed this up quite well. It said, the day you chose to submit your life to the God of the universe who created you, the entire population of heaven rose to their feet in joyous, thundering applause. And then this author adds, just imagine what life would be like if you live with the same exuberance for reclaiming God's people for him. There's got to be more parties in heaven. That is why we've got to shift our focus. It's why we've taken time. And again, I have no regrets about everything that we've talked about to this point. I'm glad that you've been encouraged. I'm glad that you've been inspired. I hope that that's happened. But now I want you to be challenged. I want you to realign your focus on what really matters most to God, and that is lost things being found. So we need to shift our focus and our concern back to the main thing. Many of you have family members, many of you have friends, many of you have coworkers that are far from God. Some of you, and I, I just want to rattle your cage a little bit and hope you'll still love me afterwards. I think you will. If you don't, that's between you and God. I can't, I can't do anything about that. But for many of you, it's been a long time since you've invited somebody to go to church. For many of you, it's been a long time since you've shared your faith. For many of you, it's been a long time that you've told, told somebody your story about you, how you came to Jesus. I hope that this is not true for you, although it is true for some Christians that I've ran into. They just want to keep their commitment to Jesus silent in the workplace. It's like buying into the notion, well, religion is a private matter. <laughs> no. Religion may be, but Christianity is a global concern. And you ought not hide behind the reality that Jesus has changed your life because people need to know that. And people are hurting in this world. Would you not agree? And people need to make sure that their eternities are settled. People are confused enough and in question enough about what's going on in this world, much less eternity. So why don't we just sort of step back and just start thinking about these family members, reassert our energy again toward reaching and praying for and inviting our family members and friends and sharing our faith with people and inviting people to come to church. And why don't as a church, we just keep saying more and more, anytime we gather together and we're fed and we're encouraged and we're inspired, there's always going to be open seats for people that are far from God. And you know, worship is a powerful witness. Sally Morgenthayer, I believe her name is, wrote a, a book a long time ago that was called Worship is a Witness. And you, no, you never know. I've had these conversations many times where somebody comes into our church and they're not yet a Christian and they see us worshiping God and they see us loving God. And I've had people tell me this again and again. They said, they said I just busted out crying and I didn't know why. 
And then they've oftentimes, I've heard this myriads of time, what's wrong with me? And this is what I've said, nothing's wrong with you. You are in the presence of God and it spoke to your life. And how many of you know that worship is a powerful witness? And when we worship God and we're excited about God and then we get together and we look at messages sitting around the Bible, and we've got to keep doing that in our Sunday services and we've got to keep focusing our energy on Kids Club where, you know, there's so many kids in our community that, that they cannot come to church. Nobody's going to bring them to church. And so we just keep with Kids Club, we just keep taking church to them. The Dream Center, the Dream Center, when you think about the Dream Center, many of you are not familiar with it yet, when you think about the Dream Center, it, it targets a portion of our community. There are people that the Dream Center reaches out to that most of us are never going to run in, con- uh, in contact with. We're not just going to walk up into some of these neighborhoods where the Dream Center now has influence and just say, hey, I'm just knocking on your door to tell you about Jesus. But through our alignment with the Dream Center, there's people in every segment of our community that can be reached. I want to close with a story, and I know I'm about a minute over time, but I just want to share this with you, all right? read this not too long ago, and I'll just read three paragraphs and I'll pray. What do you think was the largest single publication in the 1960s? What book, magazine, or print product do you think outstripped everything else? It was actually... A catalog, and it was not the 19th, and it was not produced by Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward. It was produced by a company called Sperry and Hutchinson, better known. This is going to jog some of your memories. Better known as S and H. And then the writer says, "Ever hear?" And I just ask you the question: Ever hear of S and H green stamps? Anybody here? Yeah. All right. At their height, and I'll read this. At their height, S and H printed three times more stamps than than the United States government. They published enough catalogs to more than circle the earth. If you saved enough of the S&H green, you remember the little books? Just put them in. Uh, If you saved enough of their stamps, you could get a toaster or another appliance. In fact, one school in Erie, Pennsylvania, saved 5.4 million green stamps and bought two gorillas for a local zoo. How many of you didn't know you could buy gorillas with green stamps? What would you do? You'd take these stamps to a place called a redemption center to be exchanged, to be redeemed. The company is still around, by the way, online and offers what are called green points. Amazingly enough, they're still accepting stamps. If you find any in the attic, you can still turn them in. It's not too late. And then this writer says, and man, this just grabbed me. With endless patience at infinite cost to himself, God had been waiting since the beginning of history, watching, suffering, loving, until the fullness of time, he sent his only begotten son to a redemption center on a hill called Calvary. What does he want to redeem? Everyone. God cares about lost people. And when things are lost, when something is lost that you really love, you search and you don't stop until you found it. And then when you find it, there's a celebration in all of heaven. You know, the first time I ever heard a talk out of Luke 15, it totally changed my life. It totally changed my focus. And I've simply asked God to somehow maybe use me today, all my limitations, to change your heart, to change your focus, to change your attention. In the words of Rick Warren, in the beginning statement of that book, it's not all about us. God loves us. God cares about us. God redeemed us. 
But God will not be satisfied until the whole world receives him as the Savior and leader of their life. Would you agree? Let's stand for a closing prayer. Man, don't miss next week. I'm going to talk to you real practically. I'm going to let you know, and you don't even know this yet, you're an evangelist. You don't know it, but you are. But there's more than one way, and I'm going to talk to you about how God wired you up. You will not want to miss because I know what's in your heart. What's in your heart is what's in my heart. I know I need to be sharing my faith. I know I need to be talking to people about Jesus. I know that I need to be involved with Jesus in the redemption business, but I don't know what to do. That's why you need to be here next week. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the fact that when we bowed our knee, wherever we were, and invited you to come into our life, that there was this cosmic celebration in heaven. Something that was lost was found. We were lost, and you found us. You wouldn't stop until you found us. And Lord, we know that there ought to be more parties thrown in heaven, and we want to be involved in that with you. In fact, if you're here today and you just say, you know, Jeff, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're a cynic. Maybe you're a critic. Maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you're thought that you were atheistic in your belief, agnostic at best. I want to tell you there's a God in heaven that's looking for you, and he cares about you, and he wants you to be saved. And God loved you so much, he sent his son Jesus to a redemption center. It's a cross. Spill blood for you so that you could be in his family, so that one day you could be in heaven, so that you could have somebody holding your hand in this dark, broken, messed up world. So if you're here today and you've never received Jesus, but you just you can pray it right in your mind, in your heart. Jesus, thank you for saving me. I, for, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I need forgiveness. I know that I cannot save myself. Only you can save me. So Jesus, right now, I invite you to come into my life. Save my soul. Help me to be ready for heaven. Guide me through this life. I know that you were searching for me. I never knew that there would be a party in heaven at this moment when I received you, when I became a Christian, when I was saved. But Jesus, I receive you now. Teach me what to do. Show me the way. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Thank you for being here. Have a great week.